But first, let's start with the travel restrictions that are in place from the federal government here. Now, you know that Justin Trudeau had announced that they would stop direct flights from Canada to sun destinations, including the Caribbean and Mexico. But what about Hawaii? Yes, you can still fly to Hawaii. Let's discuss now with my guest, Claire Newell, Global BC travel expert, president of Travel Best Bets. Always great to have her on. Claire, thanks for coming on. Oh, my pleasure, Mike. Yeah, the um, this is quite quite a week for uh, travel restrictions coming into play because a week today we also start that ho- mandatory hotel quarantine at the traveler's expense, which has absolutely um, crushed the travel industry because really who wants to go through that and pay $2,000 to be uh, kind of locked up in a hotel? Yeah, lots to talk about here. Let's talk about the Hawaii trips first, Claire. Are you still seeing a lot of people flying to Hawaii? No, we're not. Okay. In fact, we haven't for months and months. Um, there are, I know, still people going, um, but we're certainly not seeing a lot of people booking. In fact, what we're seeing is a lot of people who were in Hawaii, snowbirds who maybe have property there, calling us all last week trying to get home prior to these travel restrictions coming into play, which wow. actually happen midnight so the very wee hours on february 22nd so we're advising people get back here if they want to avoid that um and arrive no later than probably 6 p.m on the 21st which would be next sunday because who wants to um get the risk of uh, of a delayed flight and end up having to go and stay in hotel because uh, they won't care what time you are supposed to arrive they will care what time you do arrive Okay, I'm checking out the government of Hawaii's COVID-19 travel uh, website. It says 114 passengers from Calgary and Vancouver arrived in Hawaii on this past Saturday aboard a WestJet flight. So that's just, so there are some, a small number of people still traveling to Hawaii. Yeah, and likely those are the same people who will go for a one-week getaway, which is the typical time. So they would have known that they could squeak under the radar and get back by the 20th. So the 13th they left, they'd be back on the 20th. That said, still very, very few people traveling outside of Canada now, given all of the rules. The mandatory 14-day quarantine was already a huge deterrent, but the fact that you have to have a PCR test on the way home, and then once you land, and then everything else now, starting the 22nd. Do you think it's weird that the government banned flights to Mexico and the Caribbean, but they still allowed flights to Hawaii even you know albeit very small number of people going there but you can still you can still do it if you want you really want to yeah, uh, the the reality is that the, what they were doing is looking at the 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 sun destinations by the Canadian tour operators. So Air Canada's division, Air Canada Vacations, WestJet's holiday division, WestJet Vacations, Transat, and Sunwing, and typically those are going down to you know all inclusive vacations in the Caribbean and Mexico, and those are not essential travel. I mean, it's not right. the time to travel. Like very very few people on that aircraft are going to be going for essential reasons. Okay, speaking of Claire Newell, global BC travel expert, travel best bets. Okay, Claire, let's talk about these quarantine rules, which are, which are fascinating and which you said they're, they're coming into effect here. So the whole, the hotel quarantine, uh, how is this going to work now? So, so remind me again, when does it kick in and how's it going to work? So it's going to start on February the 22nd. So typically right. when it, the government puts that in place, it happens starting at midnight. So as you know, there's some flights that come in very, very uh, early. One of the things that's getting um, a lot of people confused is the fact that normally when you have a connecting flight, so if you were in the Caribbean and you want to get back to Vancouver, you may have to connect, say, in Toronto. It's very, very common. 
you, I would recommend that you don't do that because for this particular case, you need to book a hotel in the city in which you first arrive in Canada. And then you have to go into that hotel quarantine at your cost, which you have to book. Now, we don't have that list that's coming out in two days on February the 18th. Once that list comes out, all of them are supposed to be within 10, kilom- uh, 10 kilometers of the airport and in varying degrees of cost. Um, the average is around $2,000. And what we do know is that's going to cover your room, your food, the cleaning, the infection prevention and control measures, as well as security and transportation. So it could be up to three days. If you get your test back early, you're free to go. But again, if you have a connecting flight through another uh, city in Canada, which is accepting international flights, which would only be Toronto, Montreal, Calgary, and then Vancouver, um, you want to make sure that you you book it. That said, um, most people are trying to get through a different city. The reality is, is Mike, we've seen the airlines, any airlines that are traveling to or from Canada, look at their routes and end up either canceling or limiting them maybe till once a week. So even getting back is quite difficult for people. If you know anybody who's away and, you know, they're kind of dilly-dallying on getting their flight booked, they should do it sooner rather than later. Last week, we had dozens of people um, from Arizona, Florida, California, Hawaii, um, book to get home to avoid th- these measures wow. because if you've taken a look online there's plastic everywhere there's bins it's it's not like you're staying in a luxury hotel and having a a spa and a nice restaurant you are in your room can you upgrade uh, yeah like, like, I, can, for, can you can you yeah. stay at, can you stay at the four seasons or what like you know no, or we do don't you have... know yet okay. we don't know the list but um i'm uh, anticipating very much like the uk and australia when you book you're booking it you can book in levels you know three four or five star um but again it gets more expensive uh, yeah. but you're not getting to enjoy all the amenities of these gorgeous hotels which is why typically people end up booking in them so it's uh it's pretty hardcore. Now, the other thing that uh, you have to do is you still have to quarantine. So when you get a negative test, you can go to your home and quarantine for the rest of the self-isolation period, but you do have to have another COVID-19 test on day 10. And so that, again, that's all starting on February the 22nd. More and more details are going to be put up uh, two days from now on the 18th as far as the hotels. But really, this is not the time to be traveling. Who wants to go through all of this? Oh, no, no kidding. Like, it's a lot to go through for sure. Now, February 22nd, this coming Tuesday, uh, Monday, Monday. Is, is when this will kick in. So, Claire, you mentioned that this is really, you know, kick the, kick the travel industry. When, uh, can you, can you describe oh, that? Like, yeah. what, what's this been like? It's, it's, it's just put, it has ground travel to a real halt. And I feel for every uh, business, small and big in BC, especially, not only are they not having international travelers, for the second year in a row, the cruise ship season has been canceled. So there's a, a lot of heartache in this, um, in this province, but also around the world where they are estimating, well, the World Travel and Tourism Council is estimating 175 million jobs in 2020 were lost because of the pandemic. And that's just growing. And the airline industry has lost about $120 billion. Uh, in 2020, wow. that was um, a stat that came out by IATA. And it, it's at really every level. However, there is some optimism. We know that there's a light at the end of the tunnel with the vaccines been rolling out. And I'm just looking at some headlines saying that um, they're starting to be where vaccines are rolled out. There's an uptick in uh, in travel and looking. 
Um, but this is definitely going to be a spring and summer where we look to travel in, within our own province as soon as the restrictions are lifted. That's the thing. We have restrictions in place right now to stay in the regions that we live in, not even travel outside of that. Okay. So people are wanting to put something on the books. I- I'm suggesting nothing earlier than, you know, March 15th, maybe April the 1st, kind of go later than that, but be prepared that you may have to change those dates. So look for something that's flexible. So if you see a deal and you like it, just make sure that there's that flexible terms and conditions so you're not left holding the bag because we're just not sure how it's all going to and when it's all going to be lifted. Claire, thank you for coming on this morning. Thanks, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. As you heard in your news here, the breaking news at this hour out of Ottawa, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announcing that national buyback program for banned military assault-style firearms, as the government calls them now. The descriptions are changing a little bit here and how the government describes these these firearms. Assault-style firearms is what the government calls them now. Have a listen to Trudeau here just a short time ago talking about how this leg- legislation came around. We've studied a range of options. We looked at what our allies are doing, including New Zealand. We saw what works and what doesn't, all while taking into account the realities here at home. And from this, we've charted a plan of action. We will move forward with a buyback program in the coming months and complete the prohibition to ensure these weapons cannot be legally used, transferred, transported, bequeathed, or sold. All right, Trudeau speaking this morning. The government has a list of around 1,500 different makes and models of firearms that will be banned and subject to the buyback program. Uh, lots more announced from the feds this morning, too, as well as enabling legislation that would allow municipalities to ban handguns. Uh, the government also talking about increased criminal penalties for gun smuggling and trafficking. Let's discuss now with my guest, Rod Giltaka, CEO and Executive Director, Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights. Pleased to welcome him back to the show. Rod, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Mike. Okay, we had a lot of indications that this was coming today. What are your What is your reaction? Well, it's it's the the same as every other gun bill in some respects uh, that the Liberals have trotted out, which is 100% targeted uh, against all the people that aren't doing the shooting, licensed gun owners. Um, the only thing that, uh, that, that, that I guess is, is targeted at illicit activity is the increase in the penalties for uh, firearms trafficking. Yeah. But those penalties are rarely ever actually executed on anybody in the first place. And so there's more of an enforcement problem uh, when it comes to trafficking than there is uh, uh, you know, a penalty problem. But other than that, it's all... It's all regulatory stuff for people to have firearms licenses. Okay, the crackdown on illegal weapons is interesting, and this is where I think Trudeau is somewhat vulnerable on on this program because if you take a look at the statistics on gun crime in Canada, most of the crimes being committed with firearms are with illegal firearms, right? I mean, largely weapons that are smuggled across the border from the United States, right? Isn't that like most of the crime being committed is with illegal weapons? Is Is that correct? Well, yes. So most of the crime that's committed are are committed with uh, with firearms smuggled from the United States, somewhere around 70 percent on average. I guess if you wanted to throw a number out there, that number goes all over the place. But even the even the 30 percent, if you want to use that number, that are domestically sourced, there's right. they're sourced from from thefts and break ins and stolen from police and all these things. And and again, all of the 
almost all of the criminal use of firearms in Canada is, has to do with um, criminals that are in, uh, in unlawful possession. So uh, people don't understand guns are already banned from anyone that, that doesn't have a license. So again, like none of this has to do with anything to do with public safety. And, and it's just a channel changer for Trudeau and his scandals, oh, okay. to be honest with you. For someone who owns one of these banned firearms, will the buyback be mandatory? Like what if you don't want to sell your gun to the government? Are you, are you allowed to keep it? Well, it, I don't see anything about a buyback in the bill itself, to be honest, but we'll uh, have to, <laughs> we'll have to do more research. It's only been a couple hours. Um, but there was, cause there was some speculation that if you didn't want to sell your gun to the government, you, you could keep it. But I guess, I don't know, you'd have to bury it in your yard or lock it up and never look at it again. Or like, how would that <laughs> yeah, work? Yeah. Log it in a safe or whatever and yeah, take the right. carrier out or whatever, whatever it is. But yeah. there, I think the government's going to find that, that, um, people aren't going to want to give up their guns. You know, okay. it's, Let me, because we because all these people haven't done anything wrong, Mike, and that's the real that's the problem. No one's done anything wrong but comply with the law, so they're not going to have very high um, participation. Okay, let me let's talk about handguns and the potential for handgun bans within municipalities. And here is Justin Trudeau talking about cities uh, will have the power to enforce stricter rules. Let's have a listen. Today's new legislation. We will also support municipalities to ban handguns through bylaws restricting their possession, storage, and transportation. We're backing up the cities with serious federal and criminal penalties to enforce these bylaws, including jail time for people who violate these municipal rules. Okay, we've already heard some B.C. mayors saying they're interested in a handgun ban, including Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart. Let's have a listen to this. This is Stewart talking about a possible handgun ban in Vancouver. We have heard through this federal election that uh, there is a possibility that uh, we could ban assault rifles, but but more importantly, handguns, that municipalities would have the ability to uh, ban handguns, and that's certainly something I would uh, support and would act on right away if that power was given. Okay, Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum has also talked about he'd be interested in a possible handgun ban in the city of Surrey. Uh, Rod Giltaka, your thoughts? Total lunacy. How do you figure? Total lunacy. If If you live in a city... Yeah. And you're a licensed gun owner, and you have a gun safe in your house, and you're storing your firearms. All of a sudden, what, you can't live in Surrey, or you can't live in Vancouver, or now you have to somehow move your guns out, and that makes people safer? I, at some point, these guys have to address their crime problem. They'll, they'll do literally anything that they can to not take responsibility and accountability for their failure on crime. And so, yeah, I, I don't know why gun owners are the are the favorite punching dummy for these people. I, it's, I, but the public ex- accepts it. And I think that well, people need to vote these people out of office. It's, it's, it's insane. Okay, a handgun ban, I, I think you raised some interest, some good points there. Like, how would that be enforceable? So a handgun might be illegal in one municipality, but then you go a few blocks down the street to a different municipality and it would be illegal. So, I mean, how would that... Is there any indication from what you, you heard from the announcement this morning how this would how this would work, how it would be enforced, how it would operate? So in the bill, it's, there's basically penalties, and I, I don't know that they're criminal penalties. I think, I think they uh, have to do with the Firearms Act. That's, a, that's the enabling legislation. But basically it's saying if you don't abide by the bylaw of a city, that's a criminal offense or a regulatory offense. I, I, don't, have, I don't have a definitive word on that right now, but that, that's very unconventional. I don't know if that's going to stand up to, to any kind of real scrutiny. But this is uh, this is the way that they've tried to do it. But 
the, the other thing I think that's really important to understand is you cannot store a restricted firearm if you're just a normal regular person that has a firearms license. You can't restore you can't store a restricted fire, firearm anywhere but your residence without special permission. So now there's going to be a huge bureaucratic burden. And plus, you have to find someplace, someplace else to store it. And it could be okay. stolen from there. It's, it's, uh, it's totally ridiculous. Speaking of uh, bureaucracy, have a listen to this. Federal Cabinet Minister Bill Blair here joined Trudeau at the news conference this morning. And here he is talking about the buyback program. And here he is predicting that he thinks a lot of gun owners will sell their guns to the government. Here's Bill Blair. We also know that as these new measures will eliminate all legal use of these weapons, the majority of existing owners will have no reason to retain them. We are creating the appropriate conditions and protections to facilitate a fair, respectful, and safe buyback program for these newly prohibited weapons. Okay, I'm kind of getting some flashback here to the long gun registry, which I remember cost a lot of money. But are you sort of sensing uh, a big bureaucratic bungle, an expensive bungle here? I mean, what are your thoughts on it? Of course. (laughs) Of course. You know, government doesn't do a whole lot well or efficiently. And I think this whole thing is going to be just an incredible mess. Uh, People aren't going to want to participate in it. If they do, they'll sell some of their guns. Like if I look at it from my perspective, um, the AR-15 is is a registered firearm. So they know I have it and I can't use it anywhere. I may sell you know, a couple of them back to the government and keep a couple of them. You know, it's going to be, it's going to be really at the, at the discretion of the individual if it's, if it's not mandatory. And as far as anything that's not registered, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, wouldn't sell a single gun back to the government. All right. Welcome back to the show. Justin Trudeau announcing that buyback program for banned assault weapons this morning as the government describes them. Also, potential handgun bans in municipalities in Canada. Uh, the government says it will also crack down illegal guns. Let's go right to your phone calls. Rick and Burnaby. Hey, Rick. Hi, how you doing? I'm good. What do you think? Well, um, I left uh, something on your buzz line. I don't know if you know this. I know Justin's whole premise behind this was the whole uh, polytechnic shooting, which was horrible, absolutely horrible, and his argument is to use the uh, semi-automatic weapons. But if you ever read the coroner's report from that shooting, he actually, the suspect actually altered the firearm, trying to make it fully automatic, which he broke the sear, which makes the gun fire, and he had to use it like a bolt action. And the coroner says it was used like a bolt action firearm. And I just find that he is ill-informed on the knowledge of actually what's occurred, what Okay. okay, let me get Rod Giltaka's take on that, Rod, because as you've pointed out in the past on the show, there's a lot of confusion around this stuff. I mean, when people hear assault weapons, they think of like a machine gun where, you know, you press down the trigger and it sprays gunfire. You can spray out like hundreds of hundreds of bullets. Those weapons are already illegal and banned in Canada. What we're talking about here is a semi-automatic rifle where each each bullet requires a separate pull of the trigger you can have a, a, a magazine that only takes what five bullets right but can you can you modify them like can you modify these weapons to put a bigger bigger clip in there you can't modify the way that the firearm cycles so no matter what then you have a, you had a guest a little while ago that said you can modify the firearm make a full auto number one you can't uh, number two, even if you could, it would be a prohibited firearm like a machine gun. So it would already be prohibited. When it comes to magazines, you can 3D print a magazine or you can smuggle one in from the United States or you could make your own. 
by drilling out pieces of the magazine to accept more than five rounds. So magazine capacity limits do not have any relationship to public safety, um, especially when you think, well, how many gang members are using five-round magazines? How many multiple victim public shooters are using five-round magazines? It's zero. The only people that use five-round magazines are people like me. So, again, it just takes a little bit more thinking, a little bit more discussion to understand that a lot of these regulations have no relationship to public safety. Okay, lots of phone calls here. Larry and Ladner. Hey, Larry. Okay, listen, I'm sitting here reading an ad right now from Cabela's, I guess it is, and it reads right here, 16 semi-automatic rifle with a suppressor on the barrel. It's a 22 caliber, 22 22-round magazines for 500 bucks. I mean, they shouldn't even be allowed to sell it. I mean, Rod, you want to see the picture of it. Rod Giltaka. <laughs> yeah, I think he's looking at the uh, the GSG-16. Uh, it, it's a it's a fake suppressor. It's just a piece of metal on the barrel. You, re- you really got to read a little closer. And then when it comes to magazine size restrictions, 22 caliber, which is a rimfire cartridge, it's a it's a pellet gun on steroids. They don't have magazine size limits because it's a pellet gun on steroids. So, you know, while it may look scary, you know, it takes a little more knowledge to, to address these things properly. Let's go to Paul and Shilowak on the open line. Hey, Paul. Hey, first of all, thanks a lot, Rod, for being our voice. You're an articulate, uh, solid front for those of us that are firearms owners. First of all, I take offense to the prime minister calling me a criminal this morning. He said they want to take the guns out of my out of criminals' hands. That means me. I'm a criminal in his words. Big offense on that. Uh, people really have to consider giving the municipal authority to ban handguns. How is the municipality going to know I have a handgun? Does that mean that the federal data that's kept my privacy is going to be turned over to a municipal group? And how do I know that my, my information is going to be kept private? That's, well, that's beyond anything with me. Those are some good questions that we don't have the answers to yet. And uh, we'll continue to follow it, though. P- Tony in Burnaby. Hey, Tony. How's it going? Good. Go ahead. Yeah, this is ridiculous. Like, uh, I mean, I'm purchasing, purchasing a, a handgun because I'd like to get into more target pistol shooting and getting into something called IPSIC, where it's like a, a circuit uh, uh, where you go around a circuit and shooting at different targets. Like, yeah. to me, that's what that is. You know, like, how I can enjoy it. I'm not going to go out and shoot somebody. And so why are they saying that I'm a criminal now because I want to have a handgun? Okay, Tony. Thanks a lot. Problem. Thanks a lot for the call. Like for people who have a handgun now, Rob. I mean, they're very strict um, limits on. You can only take them to a, a gun range, right? And you have to. They have to be locked up. Otherwise, that's that's correct. And yeah. and if you don't store your handgun properly, as as per the regulation, it's a criminal offense. Like we're talking yeah. jail time. So this it was very. The whole system was probably overbuilt to begin with. So again, this is, in my opinion, this is just a channel changer for Justin Trudeau and. And it's divisive, right? Well, I think there is actually a lot of politics going on because at the same time this is happening, there's speculation about a possible federal election. So when I see a rollout like this, that to me, it, it sort of smacks a kind of staging for a potential election call because I think the liberals like this as a, a wedge issue against the conservatives. Let's go to John in Vancouver. Hey, John. Hey, I'm. you know, what I can't understand is, remember this long rifle thing, what yeah. in God's name is he doing? Why don't you start 
tightening up the criminal laws and start getting strict there instead of going after the average person who is a gun owner. Okay, well, he said just, he did, he did say... leave it there. Thanks for the call. He did say this morning that the government would increase criminal penalties for gun smuggling and trafficking. I mean, you must be... You must be happy to hear that, Rod. Well, I'm always happy to hear that, uh, you know, if, if criminals are being dealt with harshly because I'm having to pay the, pay the price for their actions, and which is, which is insane. Uh, the problem is, is that the, the criminal penalties for all these things were, 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 were pretty serious to begin with. But yet those criminal penalties are never, they're never dealt with, uh, you know, as, as a maximum from the courts. So you have okay. a catch and release system, and now we have more laws that will be, you know, uh, implemented in the catch and release system. It just doesn't doesn't work. Sending sending thanks for coming to on. jail, you know. Th- thanks for coming on, Rod. It's my pleasure. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's get you an update now on Canada's vaccine supply. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is saying this morning that he is confident the vaccine supply will get back on track in Canada. He said he spoke to officials at Pfizer and Moderna about the vaccine supply. Let's have a listen to Trudeau here speaking uh, this morning. This week, we are on schedule to receive our single largest Pfizer vaccine shipment to date. And next week, we're expecting an even larger shipment from Pfizer again. Yesterday, I spoke with Nubar Afayan, chairman of Moderna. He confirmed that, as promised, we are on track to receive 2 million doses of the Moderna vaccine before the end of March. Okay, Trudeau trying to reassure Canadians there the vaccine supply is ramping up once again. Let's discuss now with my guest. We've got a great panel assembled for you. Steve McKinnon is a Liberal MP for Gatineau. He is the Parliamentary Secretary for Procurement, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Mr. McKinnon, thanks for coming on. Good morning. Appreciate it a lot. Also on the line is Dan Albus, Conservative MP in the Central Okanagan, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Dan Albus, thank you. Thanks, Mike. Thanks thanks to both of you guys. Uh, Steve McKinnon, let me go to you first. Uh, the Prime Minister trying to reassure Canadians that the vaccine supply is going to get back on track. Uh, how much of a disruption has this been, and what can, what can Canadians expect now? Well, um, obviously, supply chains uh, have been under considerable strain as worldwide demand uh, obviously outstrips uh, supply as manufacturers ramped up, ramp up and vaccines get approved. Mike, and so uh, Canada has, of course, been extremely active, and by active I mean daily, working with these manufacturers and others to ensure that vaccines arrive in Canada just as soon as possible. And as you heard, just heard the Prime Minister say, uh, the six million doses that we've always assured Canadians would be arriving yeah. by the end of March will, in fact, be arriving, and that will ramp up quite significantly. So in British Columbia, what you will see is a significant ramp-up logistically uh, on the part of the province and health authorities there uh, of uh, the vaccination effort, and that will be true right across the country. How about the European Commission and concerns there about that that could produce some sort of a bottleneck on supply? I know the Prime Minister has reached out there. Do you have any update on that? Well, we've always uh, been uh, reassured and in turn reassured Canadians that uh, uh, there will be no vaccine holdups coming out of uh, uh, European plants destined for Canada. Uh, We've uh, gotten those assurances at the highest possible levels and uh, credit to the Prime Minister, Canadian diplomats, uh, to make sure that Canada has uninterrupted supply chains. And uh, we, of course, have global supply chains in PPE and vaccines, 
in therapeutics and other things, and and uh, uh, we rely on uh, those supply chains, as do the uh, European uh, Union countries. Okay, let me go to Dan Albus, Conservative MP from British Columbia here. Dan, what are your thoughts? Well, let's just put this into context. Last Friday, the Conservatives and opposition members supported a, uh, a motion at the Health Committee that Liberals uh, filibustered the, the entire time on, asking for the same level of transparency that the European Union and other countries like the United States to put forward the contracts, uh, the same type of information, not proprietary, wouldn't harm anyone. Um, and we're not get, they spent the entire time filibustering it. Look, where, where there's smoke, there's fire. Um, there is not sufficient transparency coming out from this, this government. We are not in the right section of the world in data. I, I believe we're past the 50 mark or thereabouts. We should be in the top 10. And yet the government says we are doing everything. Well, it's conservatives that are saying put forward the contracts. How would, that, refuse, how, would that, uh, how would that improve the vaccine supply, seeing the contracts? I mean, most people just want to know, what am I getting my shot? You know? Well, that, that would give us the, did the, the government actually just say, uh, you know, we're going to take the timelines uh, that uh, the companies gave us uh, and that, that all of this has been a shell game. Like, look, 90% of people in British Columbia, uh, you know, of the shots have gone out to people that have not received uh, the, the second shot yet. So what that yeah. essentially means is we have to play catch up. This government is, is behind on its promises. It's not being transparent like other countries. Countries. When we make suggestions like to phone the Prime Minister of India or AstraZeneca is there, they dis- disregard that, and yet that's exactly what the Prime Minister does the next week. Okay, let me go back to Liberal MP Steve McKinnon to get his response. Steve. Well, um, look, as Dan, I mean, look, I, I understand that uh, opposition, the official opposition doing its work, and look, we are in the middle of a pandemic. And um, and I know that can- Canadians look to people like yourself, Mike, and others for for information uh, with respect to a contract. I mean, that's just not true. The uh, European Community, the United States, the United Kingdom, other countries around the world have not uh, revealed um, the full extent of their contract with va- vaccine manufacturers, and neither has Canada. That is the, well, the one thing nothing, that, that is accurate. You, um, we we have not revealed that, and that is because. Uh, of a couple of important things. Number one, we are in a global race to vaccinate our population, and there are uh, significant uh, pieces of information in there which uh, countries that are in the same position as us in a race to vaccinate their citizens would love to have. So we <clears throat> we don't intend to share that. <clears throat> Pardon me. And, and the second issue is that uh, other countries around the world, like Canada, are subject to stringent intellectual property and other provisions, confidentiality provisions in these contracts that we are uh, uh, sworn to uphold and we uh, must uphold in the interest of securing the very vaccines that we're discussing here today. So I don't understand the issue about uh, vaccine contracts. We are very transparent, as transparent as any federated country in the world in sharing dosage data, in uh, pre-announcing how many doses... provinces like British Columbia will be receiving, um, and uh, we are as transparent uh, as possible, as it is possible to be with uh, me, our partners in the provinces. Let me go back to Conservative MP Dan Albus. Now, we heard the Prime Minister repeat this morning that more vaccine is on the way. They expect to get all the vaccine that Canada contracted to receive, that the delay is, is short-term, and, and things are going to start ramping up here very, very quickly. Are you, how confident are you that that's going to happen? 
Well, what I'd say, first of all, is they're not as transparent. The United States uh, and the European Union have put their contracts online. That's very easy for anyone to go on Google and, and, and do. What it would do is it would be able to give us some certainty as to what kind of contract the government negotiated. It seems that they've put everything where it's it's on Canadians that are paying the price, not on, on those companies. Did they put in uh, deadlines that have uh, that, that we can pursue uh, if, if, if they fall behind? We are behind. We are not like the Americans. We are not like the Europeans. We are not like the British, where we are seeing our population. We have 21,000 plus people have died of COVID-19, and the government keeps reassuring that someday it'll come. As one of my constituents said, it's like you're in a snowstorm and the home hardware says to you, uh, we'll have 40 shovels for you uh, in September when you need them today. That's the problem this government okay. has. Okay. And I want to hear more urgency out of this government. They filibuster basic information and then they say oh no we're being transparent they are not let me let me go back world and data numbers they are not being transparent they are not getting the job done we need them to let me go back to steve mckinnon here as we as we run out of time but uh, taking a look at the world and data numbers that you just referenced if we if we take a look steve where canada is ranked here we're at like around number 50 in the world right now and i I take a look at the countries that are ahead of us in terms of per capita of vaccines administered so far i mean the united kingdom the united states uh chile denmark uh switzerland poland norway Germany, Finland. I mean, it's just, just like there's 50 countries ahead of us. I mean, we should 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 we not reasonably be in the in the top 10 at least? Mike, we've said we've set a very ambitious uh, objective for Canada, and that is to vaccinate every Canadian who wishes to receive a vaccine by the end of September. Uh, yeah. We are on track. In fact, uh, we are uh, more than on track, on track to achieve that objective. Uh, we have advanced many vaccine procurements. We announced last week that we would have additional Pfizer doses coming in the second quarter, so in this spring, this coming spring. You just heard the Prime Minister say that this week, next week, and weeks beyond, we will be receiving more Pfizer doses than we've received uh, at any point to date. Moderna will uh, meet their objective of 2 million doses, and that means significant numbers flowing into Canada. So you are about to see a very considerable ramp-up in Canadians uh, in Canada's vaccine effort and we will meet that objective of uh, of the end of September. Okay, last thoughts to you Dan Albus, Are you, does that reassure you? Well, first of all, they're not on track because we have people in provinces right now where they're waiting multiple weeks past the point they're supposed to under the Health Canada regulations for vaccination. So they're behind in their promises. The, the, the data is real. We are, we are far behind other countries, and we're not getting sufficient answers or transparency. Every time we ask for more information and, and put these forward good suggestions, they filibuster or they disregard okay. it. Canada, okay. Canadians deserve better from this government. And you know what? We're going to keep pushing them to get a better response because being in the bo- the bottom end of, of 50 doesn't cut it for my constituents. Gentlemen, I want to thank both of you for being here once again. It is uh, my great pleasure to have you both here. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the great bear hunting debate now, as promised. Now, we all know hunting grizzly bears has been banned in British Columbia. That's been in place since 2017. But what about hunting black bears? Should that be banned too? We've got the spring bear hunt approaching in British Columbia. Let's discuss now with our panel. I think we got two of the best possible guests for you on this topic. Rebecca Bredder is here. She's an animal rights lawyer at Breda Law. Uh, Breder Law, I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Rebecca, thank you for coming on. 
Hi, thank you so much. Thank you for being here. Also on the line is Jesse Zeman. He is the Director of Fish and Wildlife Restoration Programs at the BC Wildlife Federation. They represent resident hunters in British Columbia. I'm pleased to welcome Jesse back to the show. Jesse, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Jesse, let me go to you first. The bear hunt in British Columbia, like how many black bears are hunted in BC? Sure, yeah. So the provincial population estimate is somewhere between 120,000 and 160,000. The sustainable harvest rate for black bears is usually around 10%, um, which would be 12 to 16,000 in terms of a harvestable sustainable, uh, sustainable harvest rate. And currently we're harvesting around 3,000 to 3,500 black bears per year through licensed uh, resident hunting. Is that a restricted hunt or is it like open season or do you have to have a tag to hunt a, a bear or how does that work? Yeah, so to become a hunter in BC, you have to take your core course. Um, you have to get certified. There's a bunch around firearm safety, animal identification, um, ethics, those sorts of things. And then you go out, you would purchase a hunting license, and you would also need a black bear license. And a black bear license um, allows you to go out hunting. Uh, the hunt is restricted in the sense that hunting is limited only to animals that are at least two years of age and not in the company of um of animals under two years of age, so that would mean uh, females with cubs would be protected from hunting. Okay, Rebecca Bretter, your thoughts on it? Thanks so much. First of all, Mike, I have to thank you so much for this opportunity because sure. what you're doing now, which is providing your listeners with both perspectives, anti-hunting and pro-hunting, is the complete opposite of what governments across this country, including our own, do. They cater and listen to only hunting interests, trappers and fishermen they do not bring other stakeholders to the table like those who actually want to protect wildlife by keeping them alive a, a few points on that let me just say uh the the point about how the, the number of bears that jesse pointed let me be clear about something the way that this province calculates or estimates how much wildlife there is in this province is not science-based. They get their numbers the majority of the time through hunter surveys. These are not reliable. They're very self-serving. And they, they just simply, government reports themselves from their own websites and their own data. They themselves say how they often don't know how many animals are out there. So to say confidently that there are, oh, 120,000 bears out there and that there's a 10% sustainable harvest rate is simply wrong. Not to mention just the term uh, sustainable harvest or what's often used in this language is harvestable surplus. What the heck does that mean? It's, it's that there's enough to kill for, for fun, for gratuitous, for gratuitous reasons. Ultimately, well, these numbers are unreliable. But let me also say that... Well, let me, well, let me, get, let me get Jesse's response on that because, I don't, like, to me, like a sustainable hunt means that you're, you're, you're not taking too many animals that, that threatens the stability of the, the long-term population of, the, of these animals. But, Jesse, can you explain it? What is, what is a sustainable hunt? What does that mean? Right, yeah. And so that's, you know, and when we talk about the BC Wildlife Federation, we're, we're a conservation organization. So at the end of the day, when we talk about bears or steelhead, or salmon, or any species out there, we want to make sure that there are the same number tomorrow as there are today. And so from a hunter's perspective and a conservationist's perspective, first of all, a lot of times the species that we try to help and secure habitat for are species that we don't hunt and that we won't hunt for generations. And when we talk about steelhead or salmon, those are things that 
you know, we're 30 or 40 decades from recovery. So the fundamental basis around hunting and being a conservationist is that you have to make sure that what you're doing is sustainable. And how do you make sure that that number is sustainable? Where do those numbers come from? Do you have scientists? Does the government have scientists walking around every day in different parts of the province with a piece of paper and pen or, or whatever technology to, to actually count the numbers? Or are the numbers actually coming from the hunting, self-interested uh, groups? Jesse. Sure. Uh, in terms of the numbers... So with black bears, uh, it depends on the area, but we can also support that with other things like public data. And so when we look at the exactly, number of Exactly, public data, country, which comes hang on, from hang on, hang on, let him answer, let him answer. Yeah, sorry, Thanks. go ahead. Yeah. Thanks, Mike, appreciate it. So when we look at the number of complaints, so if we talk about the public interest and what the public is seeing, if we look at the number of complaints related to black bears, uh, related to uh, call-ins, we get about 32,000 call-ins to Conservation Officer Service every year about problem wildlife in the in the province. And when we break that out, what we find is about 18,000 of those come from black bears. So if we have the public calling in 18,000 times per year complaining about black bears in their yard and the black bears that they're seeing, I would suggest that it's not just hunter data and it's not just the province's data, but also that the public is saying there's a lot of black bears out there, they're in my yard, reading my garbage. So there's okay. multiple lines of evidence. Sure. Okay, sure. Look, Rebecca, let, let me let me just let me just concert. let me just segue to a different a, a different angle on this though, just in sure. the interest in the interest of time that we've got. Can you Rebecca, can you comment basically I I I guess on the ethics of hunting these animals? I mean, the fact that this is kind of an apex predator, um does that do you think that you think the you think the black bear hunt should be banned, right? Can you make the case for that briefly? Well, not only the black bear, I think hunting in general should be banned. I'll give you three good reasons. Morally, it's wrong. Scientifically, it's wrong. And financially, it's wrong. Morally, it's wrong because it just makes no sense to go and say that you're conserving an animal when or a wildlife population when you're going and killing them. It's an oxymoron to say that hunting is a conservation effort. Science-wise, like I said, there are, there's no reliable scientific basis to do this. There, the numbers are unreliable. But more importantly, but for, for those people who don't necessarily want to go around hugging every animal like I want to do, which I don't, but I would love to, is financially. Financially, it makes a heck of a lot more sense to have a, an industry based on ecotourism where money is generated by keeping animals alive than killing them. One okay. quick example is that yeah. the bear-related, talking about bears, the bear-related ecotourism, there was a study done by the Stanford University, by Stanford University in Washington and, and supported by Tides Canada. They, uh, in 2004 or 14, I believe, and they came up with the results that bear viewing, not killing, generates 12 times more in visitor spending than, than does bear okay. hunting. Okay, let me go to Jesse Zeman for his response. Jesse, can you make the case for the bear hunt? Yeah, sure. And I think we should talk about hunting broadly because I'm getting the okay. sense that Rebecca's kind of representing hunters and anglers in a light that's not consistent with why they hunt and fish. And so when we ask them, when we do the research and the statistics, we ask them what their three top motivations are, and that's to get out in the wilderness, the opportunity to harvest a legal animal, and spending time with friends and family. And so, uh, Mike, being an angler, you know what this is all about. Uh, hunting is not about going out and killing something or killing a trophy. There's a whole bunch to it, and the big part is bringing people together and going out and appreciating nature, spending dollars into conservation and conserving what we have. And I think the piece around sustainability um, is that 
wildlife doesn't disappear because someone hunts it or fishes it or runs it over with a car. The big crisis that we're facing in BC is habitat values, unsustainable resource extraction. And the first people who put up their hand to be removed from the equation are hunters. Typically, you'll see hunters saying, regulate us, change the regulation. We're concerned about what's going on. And we've certainly experienced that with moose in the province with 50 to 70% decline. So I think broadly, what I'm trying to say is hunters care. They want to put their money into conservation. And they're deathly afraid that they're seeing these declines in fish and wildlife values across the province. And at the same time, while they're putting money into conservation uh, more than any other group, uh, they have other groups who are concerned with what they're doing. And I think that's really unfortunate. All right, welcome back to the show as we continue our bear hunting debate. Jesse Zeman, Rebecca Bretter. Hey, Jesse, let me ask you this real quick. When when guys go out and go black bear hunting, do you is that a trophy hunt? Like, do most people would they take a black bear for the for the the hide or the head, or do people actually eat the meat? Yeah, that's a good question, Mike. And it's not just guys that hunt. I should say that as well. well. Yeah, we're you're right. Is it's, you know, it's it's changing. There's more and more female participation, right. and more families getting into it. So that's a big point is um, the kind of the social component and people going out and enjoying nature. But in terms of black bear meat, um, when we ask the question, because it's so highly debated and people throw the word around, uh, when we ask people about trophy hunting, we ask resident hunters, you'll find that less than 2% will identify them as a, as a quote-unquote trophy hunter or someone who's looking for a trophy. And we put that in when we do our social sciences, and that's always the least or the lowest motivating factor um, by a large margin. So when people go out and hunt black bears, they're going out to enjoy outdoors. You know, only probably 10 or 12% of people actually harvest a black bear, and when they do, quite often they use the whole animal. Um, at our house, black bear hams, double-smoked black forest hams, are the, uh, the preferred cut, and uh, I can speak uh, on behalf of my wife that's her favorite her favorite kind of meat so um black hmm. bear meat is great the only challenge with it just like pork is it can have trichinosis you have to cook it all the way through but it makes for phenomenal table fare okay rebecca yeah, what let's about just that be clear let's yeah. just be clear i'm not saying that n- nobody eats bear meat yeah of course some people will eat it but the vast majority of hunters who go and kill the bear they're doing it or or other of these big animals they're doing it because they want the claws, they want the head, they want the trophy. The 2% uh, percentage that Jesse quoted, how is trophy hunter actually defined? The, a person who goes out to hunt and says that they eat, the motivation there for the vast majority of hunters today is not for the food. It's to, like Jesse says, it's to experience the outdoors, spend time with friends, and then and to kill the animal, and then there's this added bonus to eat the animal. But when it comes to bear hunting in the spring, bear hunting around the corner, I call Jesse out on how mothers and cubs are protected. That is a load of BS. And the reason I say that is because hunters themselves have a very hard time to differentiate between a female bear and a mother bear. And mother bears are such good mothers that they hide their cubs up the tree. They're, and, and, and they leave them there while they go and forage for food and do whatever they do. And then hunters kill the mothers time and time again, which okay, is why get... the three, no, I have to say this, which yeah. is why the three licensed wildlife rehab centers in BC have seen an uptake in orphaned cubs in this province. And hey, Jesse, what do you, what do you say to that? It's because of hunting. Jesse. Uh, well, I guess I'll just 
stick to the evidence and the research, uh, it's very challenging, I guess, to argue with someone who hasn't done any of the work or the social science work. But again, when we ask people, you know, why do you go hunting? They'll tell us getting out in the wilderness, the opportunity to harvest a legal animal. So what that infers is they're going out and looking for meat and also to spend time with friends and family. And the inference that this is all about trophy hunting, like I said, we add it when we do social sciences to the survey, but we only add it because there's so much of this extraneous interest around it. And it always comes out right at the very bottom. So there's other things above that, like physical activity, returning to traditional hunting areas, hunting multiple species, improving hunting abilities, telling hunting stories, and socializing. So all of these things come way above this concept of trophy hunting. And and if we got into the trophy hunting debate, what we'd look at is we would expect that it would only be large old males that were harvested. And we, when we age the harvest, what we find out is that's unsupported okay. as well. So, okay. so we have like one hundred. No, so really, Jesse, yes, I'm sorry, I have to step in because we're, finally, we're not getting a lot of airtime here. If that is so true, if it's not about the trophy hunt, why does the BC Wildlife Federation, which is a totally misleading name for what it actually is, why on its own website does it have the awards that they give out every year? The Burt Palmer Memorial Big Game Award, the Wild Sheep Foundation Silver Buckle Awards, the BC Youth... Uh, big game award all of those the criteria for getting those awards is and i'm using bcwf's own words trophy killed the head which rates the highest in comparison to the best trophies regarded by the okay. Boone and let me get these are let me get jesse's let me get jesse's response on that as we run out of time jesse yeah again when we go back to the evidence the multiple lines of evidence that we have are we talk to hunters and ask them what their motivations are we look at the population status of wildlife, and then finally we look at what they harvest and what they don't harvest. And so we have multiple lines of evidence that suggest what Rebecca is trying to infer is not consistent with the truth, and what the, what the harvest data and what our hunters are supporting. Hang on, guys. It's very challenging to have these conversations when we're sharing the evidence and the data of the social science and of the hard science that we have and on the other line, we have a data-free conversation. Okay. Very challenging. Okay, you know let what? Me, so let me just yeah. say this, Mike, that okay. at the end of the day, numbers don't even really matter. You'll find scientists who will support either position. Fundamentally, what this comes down to is that hunting and the continuation or not continuation of it will be dictated by societal values. And there's a real shift that's happening where people don't want to go out and kill animals, which is why BCWF is trying to get 10-year-olds, 10-year-olds are allowed hunting. They're trying to up it because they see it's a losing battle. There's legislative okay. changes. We just have, a mi- we just have one minute left, Jesse. Go ahead and respond to that. We just got a minute. Yeah, and so... Uh... <laughs> Again, I don't know what to say. Like, we're inferring that kids well, who go hunting and fishing are bad people and their parents are bad people. I mean, the reality of this is, is people no, go out hunting and, fishing, hunting and fishing because they enjoy the outdoors. They enjoy the connection. They're trying to get away from their cell phones and they're spending time with their families. And I can tell you, growing up in a hunting family, that my parents and grandparents have given time, money, volunteered through multiple different organizations, including non-hunting organizations, to okay. support the future of conservation in BC. That's what thank you, Je- thank you, Jesse, and thank you, Rebecca. Sadly, we're out of time. We did not get to the calls because we had the, the debate was so hot.